Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. one thing to remember about the brain is that its whole job is to adapt to experience. It it is made to be changeable. There are few parts of the brain that are completely fixed. So I think if we give it what it needs, if that's energy, nutrition, or the missing substance that that particular brain needs, that it can improve. That's researcher Amy Ramsey from the University of Toronto. It's been about a year since the Grin One family meetup, where I first learned from Amy and other researchers that a cure for my son Bryson's rare genetic condition might actually be possible. This filled me with so much hope that I've stepped back from my job as a writer to dedicate my time to poring over scientific journals and connecting with researchers around the world. I grill them about their research and try to learn more about Grin genes, NMDA receptors, and potential treatments. And of course, I ask them if they think we'll find a cure. How they answer this question affects my mood for days. Some researchers are so bullish that I become convinced that Bryson will be walking and talking and seizure-free before he reaches adulthood. Others caution that a cure may not ever come, or at least not for decades. The timelines for gene therapy, I think it would be something like five years would be really unrealistic. 10 years possible, but not probable. 20 years, I could believe. 50 years, absolutely. That's what I think is that, that 50 or, right. uh, don't you think? I mean, oh, that sounds about right, yeah. 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 But Amy says other treatments could come sooner. One thing we have going for us is that we already know Bryson's condition is caused by a known mutation in a single gene. I'm pretty confident because you have the information that many parents who have kids with autism or you know, pervasive developmental delay, they don't have that information. So they're, they're in a worse place in a way because there's, it's really not clear what the way is forward, but I think there's a, a more clear way forward for Bryson. Amy's research has shown that if you correct a mutation in an adult Grin 1 mouse, that mouse becomes more like a typical mouse. It becomes stronger, more social, and better at navigating a maze. This gives me hope that a cure could help Bryson, even if it isn't discovered for years. But here's the funny thing. 
the more I speak with people who say a cure is possible, the more conflicted I feel about it. Because the term cure is loaded. It suggests that there's something wrong with Bryson, that something needs fixing, that he's not perfect just as he is. But Bryson, he isn't broken. He's the most loving little 12-year-old you could ever imagine. His smile envelops you with genuine warmth. His hugs are the purest form of love. Yes, one of the letters in his DNA is mixed up. But the vast majority, some 6.4 billion, are copies of mine and Laura's. His little body is doing exactly what it's meant to, based on the instructions in his own unique genetic code. I'm Keith MacArthur, and this is Unlocking Bryson's Brain, a podcast about my son Bryson, his rare disease, and our family's search for a cure. I set up a call with Tim Benke from Denver. He's a double doctor, meaning he went through medical school and became a pediatric neurologist. And he's also earned a PhD in neuroscience. Smart guy. Tim sees multiple grin disorder patients, and he's leading a study to catalog grin symptoms and potential treatments. And how, how confident are you that there will be a cure, and, and what do you think that will look like? I'm a half-full person. We will have a cure. It will look like that babies will be identified on the newborn screen. They will be treated within the first month of life before a lot of symptoms develop. The therapy will be with gene therapy and they'll develop minimal to no symptoms as if it never happened. And that's what it will look like in 15 years. And what about for people who are you know, teenagers or adults now? I think the therapies for them are also going to be gene therapy, but because development has already happened, that we will not be able to see full symptom reversal. But I'm hopeful that it's a good percentage. What do we think our patients want? We want them to be able to tell us when they hurt. We want them to be able to communicate other things about their wants. We want them to be able to walk. We want them to be able to talk. And so I think that's kind of the spectrum of what parents want. Yeah, we want our, our kids to be back to, you know, neurotypical. But I think you as family members need to tell us, you know, Doc, if you could fix this one thing, this is what it would be. Yeah. So what's, what's your answer to that question? I need to know. I think my answer would be, I mean, the thing that scares me the most is what happens to my son when my wife and I aren't around anymore. Yeah. And so, I mean, maybe I'm greedy, but I want him to be able to live independently. 
Right. That'd be good. Yeah. So if you if he wasn't able to live independently and you and your wife weren't here, you'd at least want him to be able to tell somebody what his wants and needs are. Yeah, for sure. So. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for this. I wanted to be realistic. I, I don't want to kill hope here. Hope is something that we have to keep burning on, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you could tell from listening, but that discussion with Tim, it broke my hope a little because I want to believe that a full reversal for Bryson is possible. That scientists will flick a switch someday and he'll suddenly become neurotypical. But in my head, I know that's not realistic. And when I listen back now to what Tim told me, it's remarkable. He's predicting that in less than 20 years, babies born with grin disorders will be fully cured as infants, and that older patients like Bryson might get a partial cure and learn to walk and talk. I ask Scott and Teresa, the parents of Bryson's grin twin Olivia, what they think about the potential for a cure that might unlock their daughter's brain. Well, <laughs> you know, again, I've come to just love her the way she is, and I, I don't want to change her. You know, she wouldn't be the the, the young lady I've come to love so much. Uh, my my hope for all the research is for kids in the future, and some of the little kids now, there will be a, a cure or some way to at least change some of the symptoms that kids have. But, I, but I, if it would make her life easier for her, there's part of me that would be interested in that, but I don't know. It's, it is it, hard. It's, it would be a very hard decision. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly worry about her future. We're extremely protective and have trouble leaving her for any extended period of time. And so, yeah, I mean, if there was something that could make her a little more aware and could do some things to keep herself safe and then, yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. But, you know, I got I to gotta wonder, like, if genetic re-engineering or whatever, whatever it's the good, right term is, changes one thing, is it, what, what else is it going to change, you know, so. Yeah, that's something, you know, Laura, Laura and I have had the conversation that if there was, like, a button that we could press and Bryce would just suddenly be typical, like, you know, we, we both say that, that we would do it, but it wouldn't be, you know, it, it, it's not as obvious as most people think that it would be. There would be a hesitation for sure. Yeah. So, uh, hello, hello. Hi there, it's Tom Shakespeare here. Sorry I'm late. Oh, no worries. Hey, Tom. How's it going? Since Bryson can't tell me what he thinks of this quest we're on to find him a cure, I need to talk to someone else about all of this. Tom Shakespeare is a bioethicist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's also a disability rights advocate. Tom was born with achondroplasia, the most common cause of dwarfism. His disorder led to a spinal cord injury in 2008, and since then, he's used a manual wheelchair to get around, or leg braces and walking sticks that help him to walk short distances. 
So I guess maybe wanted to start by asking for your advice in terms of as we're going forward with this project and trying to find a cure, what should we be thinking about in terms of making sure that we're doing that in an ethical way? I mean, in the in the disability field, the notion of cure is controversial because many people born with conditions say that they're happy the way they are and they don't want interventions that change them. Because when you're born with a condition, it really becomes part of your identity. And they don't want to be turned into somebody different. If they're short, you know, they've got used to that. They were born with that. If they're blind, they can't imagine life without it. Now, for non-disabled people, particularly doctors and scientists, they can't believe that. They think it's bizarre and strange. But it is the case that you become adapted, that life can be very good with all of those conditions. A bunch of research studies show that people with disabilities are at least as happy as able-bodied people. Even though most able-bodied people imagine that a disability would have a profoundly negative effect on their quality of life. All of this makes me think. As Bryson's dad, I sort of think of myself as a fierce advocate for people with disabilities. But as an able-bodied person myself, what if I'm approaching all of this in the wrong way? I don't want to change Bryson into a new person. I love who he is. But at the same time, what I'm asking for is pretty radical change. I want Bryson to be able to talk or at least express his wants and desires in another way. I want him to be able to walk or at least be able to pilot his wheelchair on his own. And I want him to be free from these seizure-like episodes that cause him so much grief. You know, it's very hard to find a proxy uh, for Bryson. But, you know, you know him better than any doctor. You spend uh, all his life with him. And therefore, you know, if you're respectful that sometimes his perspective may differ from yours, and if you're open to the challenges of the disability rights community, whose perspective may sometimes be different from yours. I've got a, a, a disabled two, a disabled daughter and a disabled son, both of whom are grown up. And I know that it's complex being a parent. You want the best for your child. But it's every parent, regardless of the child's disability or not, has to learn that sometimes what you think is best for the child may not be what the child thinks is best for them. Now, it may be that Bryson can't articulate that, but you have to somehow find this find the place where you can be respectful of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I wish I could ask him, are you okay with me, you know, telling all your secrets on this podcast? Are you okay with me working with researchers to try to find a cure that would could could radically change who you are? I would imagine that, you know, you, you, you don't want him just to fit in. You want, you've talked to me about mobility limitations, you've talked to me about seizures, you've talked to me about developmental delay. You know, I, 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 I think you're being respectful in seeking to minimize the impacts of these difficulties. But I don't think I hear you saying we want a different son. I think if I if I'm not wrong, you're saying we want a son who can maximize his abilities, who's free from this debilitating seizure, um, who isn't so inconvenienced by the limitations he has. But, you know, we know he'll always be limited and um, we accept that. 
Have I accepted that? I mean, I accept and love Bryson unconditionally. And I guess I know it's likely that he'll always have more limitations than the average person. But am I willing to accept that? So is it is it wrong for me to want something that, that is a full cure? Like, I don't know how realistic it is, but... Is it wrong for me? I don't, to I don't, yeah, I mean, let's 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 acknowledge it's highly unre- unlikely. I'm afraid. Um, no, I don't think it's wrong for you to want that. Um, I, I, I yeah, I think I would counsel you to be comfortable with the limitations that we all have, and that Bryson probably will still have even after any treatment. Um, you know, the problem in the area of cure is hype. Um, you know, and people hype up things for all sorts of reasons to get Nobel prizes to get more investment for their research, um, to get promotion, um, and to bring hope. And sometimes false hope can be very, very cruel um, for people themselves, for their families. Um, So I think we have to be balanced and realistic. So I don't want to depress anybody, but, you know, don't wait up. Uh, Make the most of what you have. Um, Take the small tweaks that make life easier um, and let's think about a society where we can enable everybody to flourish, regardless of their differences. As I speak with more people in the disability community, I come to learn that even this notion of a magic cure pill is something of a loaded cliché. So I have several palsy. So I was born with this body and I have lived in this body for 50 plus years. That's Eli Clare, a Vermont-based poet, speaker, and activist. Someone else I'm hoping can help me navigate the ethics of this journey I'm on to find a cure. From the time I was about five or six years old, I've been asked if there was a pill to take that would magically take your cerebral palsy away. That would mean that my hands tremored less, that I would speak without a slur, that I would have more balance and coordination, on and on and on. Would I take the pill? Completely hypothetical question, because... There's not even serious research on a cure for CP, but this hypothetical question is something people have posed to me for a long time. And long before I had developed disability politics, so by the time I was 14 and 15, I was answering the question, no, I would not take that pill. And people always responded to me as if I had just come in from Mars. Because I've come to believe that the question is really rhetorical, that the people asking the question absolutely understand the answer to be, yes, of course, in a heartbeat, I would take that pill. But by the time I was 14 or 15, I knew that I had no idea who I would be without this very particular kind of body. 
Eli is author of several books, including Brilliant Imperfection, which explores the nature and meaning of the word cure. We live in a culture, in the, this white Western culture, where cure is thought of as an unquestioned good, regardless of context. So at one end of the spectrum, we had this dominant cultural belief that cure is always sought after, always necessary, and always both an individual and a collective good. And on the other end of the spectrum is a disability politics that really declares that disabled people want civil rights more than we want cures. And this book really tries to find the messy middle between those two poles because cure both saves lives under social control. Cure makes billions of dollars of profit and lessens chronic pain. Cure says some bodies and minds are worthy and the other body and minds are disposable. Eli says the word cure is violent because it's always about eradication. Sometimes it's about eradicating a disease from an individual, which is what I'm trying to do with Bryson. Sometimes it's about eradicating a disease altogether, like the global effort to wipe out polio. Other times that eradication isn't about the condition itself, but about an eradication of a whole group of people. I'm thinking of, for instance, Down syndrome. And the medical industrial complex hasn't found a cure for the condition of Down syndrome. Instead, there's this drive to eradicate the future people who might have Down syndrome. One way Eli sees that eradication happening is through prenatal screening. Amniocentesis is a common test where fluid from a pregnant woman's uterus is removed by needle and genetically tested. The procedure is typically used to identify Down syndrome or other genetic conditions. If the results come back positive, some parents choose to have an abortion. And if it feels like we're getting into extremely sensitive territory here, juxtaposing abortion rights and disability rights, Eli says that's not really what this is about. My thinking of this is embedded in a very pro-choice, pro-abortion politics. And at the same time, rather than questioning individual women's choices or couples' choices, rather than questioning those individual moments 
I think it's possible to look at a pattern of abortion. And certainly there is a pattern of aborting fetuses predicted to have Down syndrome. And that pattern needs to be named. And when you say it needs to be named, is it is it a form of eugenics? Yes. Yes. I would say that not every individual choice is a form of eugenics, but the pattern certainly is a form of eugenics. And that pattern is shaped by so much. You know, the the, the parents who are making the choices to abort are facing really high pressure to have the genetic testing in the first place. And then they're facing a kind of genetic counseling that's often really biased against continuing Hmm. pregnancies. Um, Facing a kind of genetic counseling that doesn't include talking with families who have family members, both children and adults, who have Down syndrome. I tell Eli about a family that learned through amniocentesis that their unborn child had a variant in one of the Grin genes. This pregnant woman wasn't in our community, but another mom posted on her behalf. And so they came to our online community and sort of asked, like, what would it be like to raise a child like this? And, you know, I guess in a way that's that's a good thing, but I still kind of took it very personally. Like it felt like a sort of judgment on the value of my son. Right, right. And how personal that feels when your son isn't seen as valuable for who he is, exactly who he is right now, regardless of what you or he desire for the future. Right. And so so if I feel like that, I can only imagine how people, you know, with Down syndrome, for example, must feel. Right. right. Here in North America, we like to think that eugenics were a European phenomenon. The Nazis and the Gestapo are passing from the stage of Europe. But even as they go, they leave a trail of slime and abominable crime that we were on the right side in World War II and helped to overcome this evil. Crowds and their millions await the official word that victory has been won in the West. Today is victory in Europe day. But in 1928, five years before Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, the Alberta legislature passed the Sexual Sterilization Act. In introducing the bill, Health Minister George Hoadley referred to the increasing burden on taxpayers of having to take care of immigrants and mentally disabled people. At the time, it was assumed that conditions from mental illness to alcoholism to epilepsy were hereditary, so preventing such people from having kids would be good for humanity's future. Over the next five decades, 2,834 people were sterilized in the province of Alberta. 
People from more vulnerable communities, including indigenous people, Métis, Catholics, and immigrants of Ukrainian descent, were disproportionately sterilized. While many consented, sometimes under duress, the act was amended so people diagnosed as, quote, mentally defective would face forced sterilizations. As recently as 1972, the year I was born, some 50 people were sterilized in the province of Alberta under this law. And in the United States, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of forced sterilizations in 1927, arguing that the world would be better off if, quote, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Amazingly, that Supreme Court decision has never been overturned. I'm rehashing all this painful history because there's a thread that connects all this, from forced sterilizations, to designer babies, to prenatal screening, to curing a debilitating disease in a 12-year-old boy I love more than just about anyone else in the world. So every day there's news about CRISPR especially, but, but just in general how new science can potentially cure genetic conditions. So how, how do you react to those? We don't have a good track record of our ethics keeping up with our technology. So I read about this knowledge about genes and these up-and-coming gene technologies and worry, worry being wild. I'm terrified because I know our ethics about how we're going to use that knowledge and those technologies lags way behind the technology itself. Who's seen as valuable and who is seen as disposable? And who's making those decisions? Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding. With me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts. Available now. There's one more big ethical question raised by both Tom and Eli, and it's about the cost of a cure. Bryson is here. He exists. His needs are evident. His rights are real. And so we should do everything we can to help Bryson. Um, the question then comes about priorities. How much money should we spend? What if it would cost hundreds of thousand dollars to help one person like Bryson which could be spent on 100 people who maybe have lesser conditions, but you would get a 
greater overall improvement in quality of life. But the resources are limited. They're finite. Mm. And the, the priorities of researchers, you know, there's only so many researchers. What should they be researching? Ebola, um, muscular dystrophy, which is very, very rare. Your son's condition, which is even rarer. We live in a world where we can pour money into this very, very high-end research. And then the U.S. still have people who don't have the most basic, a basic, a basic prenatal care. Like, how can both exist at the same time, you know? That's another part of the ethics about looking for a cure. This technology that will be available particularly first and maybe for many decades only to the most privileged. I've talked before about spinal muscular atrophy, a terrible disease that kills many children before their second birthday. Until recently, there were no cures. But thanks to pushy parents like me partnering with researchers, there are now two gene therapies on the market and even more going through clinical trials. But the cost of these therapies is astronomical. Spinraza costs $750,000 US in the first year, plus another $350,000 a year after that. Zolgensma, a competing gene therapy, comes at a one-time cost of $2.1 million US. And I know there are horrific examples of pharma companies gouging customers, but it also comes down to the economics of rare diseases. If it costs $3 billion for a biotech company to find a cure for a disease that only affects 10,000 people, it needs to charge $300,000 per patient just to break even. If CRISPR achieves its potential and results in cures for dozens more diseases, these won't come cheap. The costs of these treatments will put pressure on governments and insurance companies around the world and may further entrench a system where access to a cure depends on your financial situation. Sometimes I worry that my efforts to push for a cure might lead to one that we won't be able to afford for Bryson. There's privilege in cure and privilege in treatment. Laura and I are both white and well-educated and financially secure. English is our first language. And it's not right, but I have to recognize that all of this gives us a certain privilege to be pushy advocates for our son in a way that others cannot. I'm willing to bet that the families who have already received grin disorder diagnoses for their children are, on average, more affluent than those still searching for a diagnosis. There's certainly a bias towards more affluent countries. Hundreds of people have been diagnosed with grin disorders in North America and Europe, compared with very few in Africa and South America. As I search for a cure for my son, how do I make sure that I'm doing it responsibly? That's a really big question. Hmm. And that's a really great question. I would say part of it is 
always holding both your individual circumstances alongside knowing that this will always, always, always have collective impact, that your search for a cure for your son will have impact on other people. If a cure was found for green conditions, the way that would play out for upper middle class and rich and white families and people is really different than how it would play out for poor brown and black families, particularly in the U.S. without single-payer health care. I would also imagine that finding ways for your son to communicate as much as is possible is a really important piece of it. You know, his, like, he may not be able to participate in big decisions, but is he able to communicate what brings him joy, what brings him sorrow, and what brings him um, discomfort? You've given me so much to think about. I did want to ask, is there something from your book that you would like to read related to those discussions? Let me read a piece from the very beginning of the book called Prayers, Crystals, and Vitamins. Um, And this piece really lays out some of the groundwork of why my exploring cure has been really important to me because cure has been with me from a really early age. Strangers offer me Christian prayers or crystals and vitamins always with the same intent to touch me, fix me, mend my cerebral palsy. If only I will comply. They cry over me, wrap their arms around my shoulders, kiss my cheek. After five decades of these kinds of interactions, I still don't know how to rebuff their pity, how to tell them the simple truth that I'm not broken. Even if there were a cure for brain cells that died at birth, I refuse. I have no idea who I'd be without my tremoring, intense muscles, slurring tongue. They assume me unnatural, want to make me normal, take for granted the need and desire for cure. That's only part of Prayers, Crystals, Vitamins. You can hear Eli reading the full prose poem after the credits at the end of this episode. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. These conversations with Tom and Eli will help us make sure we're pursuing this quest in the right way. But Laura and I can't do this on our own. I hear from Denise Runner. 
one of the parents we met years ago at that first Grin One family meetup in Colorado. We talk about a global charity that would focus not just on Grin One, but mutations in any of the seven Grin genes. Denise buys the web domain CureGrin.org and registers the organization as a U.S. charity. She invites me to join the board of directors. Because of the connections I've made with researchers around the world, we decide that I should be CureGrin's head of science. The only problem is that donations to a U.S. charity aren't tax-deductible in Canada, so Laura sets up a Canadian wing. We partner with the University of Toronto, where Amy Ramsey and Graham Collingridge are already doing research on mice with Grin mutations. Getting involved in this foundation changes our perspective once again. We're no longer just looking for a cure for Bryson, or for the six other kids with his precise mutation, or even for the 80 or so patients in our Grin One support group, but for hundreds of people with mutations in any Grin gene, and thousands more who have yet to be diagnosed with this rare disease. In less than four years, Bryson has gone from an isolated patient with an unknown disease to a warrior in an army of patients, families, doctors, and researchers around the world coming together to support each other and find a cure. I've said before that my journey is a sort of medical mystery. And like any mystery, breaks in the case can come from unexpected places. One day, a friend of a friend comes across a blog post I've written about Bryson. And she connects me to Honor Von Gosch, one of the most senior scientists at Biogen. That's the company that brought Spinraza, one of the therapies for spinal muscular atrophy, to market. Biogen is one of the biggest biotech companies in the world, with a market cap of about $70 billion Canadian. We connect by email, and Anurvan offers to get on a phone call on a Sunday to help me out. Hello? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I was starting the recording. I tell Anurvan about Bryson and his rare disease, and he tells me about his background, which includes quite a bit of research into NMDA receptors at Roche and other biopharm companies. He says we're on the right path, making connections with researchers and neurologists at universities and hospitals. But he says we're missing out on a whole swath of experts, those researchers working at pharma and biotech companies. He runs through a list of companies I should meet with. Voyager, Homology, Wave, and offers to connect me with their chief science officers. Most of these companies are in the Boston area. Uh, I have a bit of a Boston-centric view here, but but also it's, it's it's also true that there are more biotech companies in Boston than anywhere else in the world. Right. So, okay. Uh, not not a bad place to start. So if you get to the point where you're saying that you know I'm going to come to Boston, I want to talk to some people, then um, I would be able to connect you with the right person. Oh, that's amazing! I really appreciate this. As soon as I get off the call, I brief Laura on everything I've learned from Honorvan. A few minutes later, we're looking up flights to Boston. 
Next time on Unlocking Bryson's Brain, we make our pilgrimage to the rare disease capital of the world, raising hopes. That's good. That's good. Very good news, I think. It's just probably quite reversible. Heating warnings. There is a very long, complicated process. And hitting snags. It's just a little bit of a bus crash into the vehicle in front of us. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is hosted and written by me, Keith MacArthur. Our associate producer is Graham McDonald, who also does our mixing and sound design. Our digital producer is Emily Canal. Chris Oak is our story editor. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Original music in this episode by Graham McDonald. Additional audio clips from Library and Archives Canada. Special thanks to Chris Albertine at Vermont Public Radio. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer. And our executive producer is Arif Nurani. You can find bonus content for this podcast on Facebook. Find us at facebook.com slash cbcpodcasts. To learn more about grin disorders, visit curegrin.org. Do you have tips to help us unlock Bryson's brain or your own story about navigating the medical world with a rare or undiagnosed condition? We'd love to hear from you. Reach us at unlocking at cbc.ca. So this is called Prayers, Crystals, Vitamins. Strangers offer me Christian prayers or crystals and vitamins, always with the same intent, to touch me, fix me, mend my cerebral palsy, if only I will comply. They cry over me, wrap their arms around my shoulders, kiss my cheek. After five decades of these kinds of interactions, I still don't know how to rebuff their pity, how to tell them the simple truth that I'm not broken. Even if there were a cure for brain cells that died at birth, I refuse. I have no idea who I'd be without my tremoring, intense muscles, slurring tongue. They assume me unnatural, want to make me normal, take for granted the need and desire for cure. Strangers ask me, what's your defect? To them, my body-mind just doesn't work right. Defect being a variation of broken, supposedly neutral. But think of the things called defective. The MP3 player that won't turn on. The car that never ran reliably. They end up in the bottom drawer dumpster, scrapyard. Defects are disposable and abnormal, body minds or objects to eradicate. Strangers pat me on the head. They whisper platitudes in my ear, cliches about courage and inspiration. They enthuse about how remarkable I am. They declare me special. Not long ago, a white woman wearing dreamcatcher earrings and a fringed leather tunic with a medicine wheel painted on its back, grabbed me in a bear hug. She told me that I, like all people who tremor, 
was a natural shaman. Yes, a shaman. In that split second, racism and ableism tumbled into each other yet again. The entitlement that leads white people to co-opt indigenous spiritualities tangling into the ableist stereotypes that bestow disabled people with spiritual qualities. She whispered in my ear that if I were trained, I could become a great healer, directing me never to forget my specialness. Oh, how special disabled people are. We have special education, special needs, special spiritual abilities. That word drips condescension. It's no better than being defective. And I want to pause here for a content note in this next paragraph. I use some um, ableist and racist hate language, and I say the words rather than the euphemisms for those words. Strangers, neighbors, and bullies have long called me retard. It doesn't happen so often now. Still, there's a guy down the road who, when he's drunk, taunts me as I walk by with my dog. But when I was a child, retard was a daily occurrence. Once on the camping trip with my family, I joined a whole crowd of kids playing tag in and around the picnic shelter. A slow, clumsy nine-year-old, I quickly became it. I chased and chased, but caught no one. The game turned. Kids came close, ducked away, yelling, retard. Frustrated, I yelled back for a while. Retard became monkey. My playmates circled me. The words became a torrent. You're a monkey, monkey, monkey. I golfed, I choked, I sobbed. Frustration, shame, humiliation swallowed me. My body-mind crumpled. It lasted two minutes or two hours. I don't know. When my father appeared, the circle scattered. Even that the word monkey connected me to the non-human natural world, I became supremely unnatural. All these kids, adults, strangers, join a legacy of naming disabled people not quite human. They approach me with prayers and vitamins, taunts and endless questions, convinced that I'm broken, special, an inspiration, a tragedy in need of cure, disposable, the momentum of centuries behind them. They have left me with sorrow, shame, and self-loathing. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.